The teaching for this evening is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And this is God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we get started, let me pray for us quickly. Heavenly Father, we do confess that in and of ourselves we have no wisdom. Um, I have no wisdom to offer in and of myself, and so we pray that you would speak to us, reveal yourself to us in a way that is, that is only from you. Uh, would you keep us from the words of man and deliver the words of God, uh, designed to bless us and give us life in the name of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. At UAB, where I'm a campus minister, we just had our graduation on Saturday and was really excited. We had one senior graduating who I'd ministered to for two years and got back from the graduation and began to change a flat tire. One of our cars had a flat tire. It was kind of hot outside. Saturday was sort of a hot day. And when I got back from the graduation, I was kind of headed towards being in a bad mood. And so I'm, I'm trying to change this tire. It's been a long time since I've changed a tire, thankfully. So I kind of felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And it was hot. And then I, I took the nuts off, and it still wouldn't come off. So I'm like YouTubing videos about how, well, what to do if you can't get your tire off the car. And I'm just getting angrier and angrier and angrier as I'm trying to change this tire. And in, in that moment, it was as if all I could see was this tire. I mean, it was like everything else in my whole life had disappeared. And all I could see was this tire that would not come off. And I was just getting angrier and angrier. And I felt like that I was, I was just the, the poorest person on the face of the planet. Like I had nothing. Like God had deserted me. And if a thought about God did come into my mind, you know, in my flesh, the only God I really could believe in at that point was just the God that was disappointed in me to have a bad attitude about changing a tire. And of course, we all experience moments like that in our lives. Times where you just feel abandoned over things that objectively are silly, but in those moments are a big deal. And the Christians who lived in the church in the first century that the book of Revelation was written to were going through intense moments where they felt like in their flesh that God had abandoned them. To the Christians that first read Revelation, they would have struggled with in their flesh 
Lord, I, I can't see you, and it feels like we have nothing. It feels like we have no belongings but what's right in front of us. And their temptation would have just been to grab for instant gratification somewhere. Well, the passage that we're looking at tonight is God's answer to that problem. And he wants to speak his revelation into our lives is the same way he did to the church there. So that he might lift our eyes so that we could see something new. And it's three things that I want to look at tonight. Looking, seeing, and belonging. Looking, seeing, and belonging. So, first, looking. And there's three things I want, I want you to see about looking. And the first is in verse 1 where it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And you might just skip right over this, but the Bible is full of affirmations that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. That's the most fundamental confession of Christians everywhere. Meaning that he's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. He's not a man. Which is why verse 1, if you really pay attention, should strike you as, as kind of strange. Because God is giving Jesus revelation. And that's because while the Bible simultaneously affirms that Jesus is God, it also affirms that he's a man. Who, who needs things, like he needed food and drink and clothes, and he even, needed, he, he even needed revelation from God. And that's important because in and of ourselves, we, we just often feel like we don't have a whole lot of faith. Like, all, all I see is my circumstances, Lord. In and of my flesh, all I see is uh, problems in my family and problems at work. And it, it's, it's all... I can really look at. And what the passage is saying is that if that's how you feel, then look to Jesus. Because he was the type of person who always looked to God. He was always receiving revelation from God and believing in it. Jesus Christ was always listening to God and putting his total and complete faith in God. In his human nature, Jesus had faith. So that when we feel like we don't have any, we can look to Christ. And ask him, Lord, would you help me to have faith? Because right now, all I can look at are my immediate circumstances. The Lord Jesus always looked to God. And he was always receiving revelation from God in his earthly ministry. But here, this scene is actually in heaven. Where Jesus has has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And he's still receiving revelation from God in his human nature. His divine nature, he doesn't need any revelation. But in his human nature, in his exalted human nature, he's still receiving revelation from God. Second thing, you see this in three different verses, verse 1, 3, and 4. So he goes on to say, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Then look down in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time... Is near. It's something about time that I want you to see. He says it again in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So you see those three different references of time. First he says that these are things that are soon going to take place in your life. Uh, these Christians in Revelation. Then he says in verse 3 that time is near. And then finally he says I want to tell you about a God who is right now. And a God who was 
and a God who is to come. The book of Revelation is often mistaken for prophecy about future events, so that it's sort of like a newspaper from the future, where Revelation is describing all these um, interesting things that are going to happen one day. And what John and the Holy Spirit are just trying to say to them and to us is that, no, 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 no. God is the one who will be, that's true. But he's also near, it says. He's the one who is right now. The things and the revelations and the amazing visions that I'm going to give you in the book of Revelation, they're about your life right now. Changing diapers, trying to make it to work, trying to pay the bills. Look to Jesus and look to this revelation that God is giving him because it's about your life. It's about the God who's with you now and who wants to speak to you in your circumstances right now. And then finally, um, one more thing about looking I wanted you to see is that these are words of life. I mentioned that when we're under the intense pressure, when, when we feel like we've been abandoned or when we feel disconnected, when we feel like we've been hurt, when we've been wounded, the, the flesh in us can only see God as a condemning God, right? That's such a terrible attitude that you have about such and such That's the only kind of God that our flesh can believe in when we're hurting, when we've been wounded, when we're suffering, when we're in pain. But what God wanted them to see, and he wants us to see, is that these are words of life. In verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep it. He is saying, if you will look to this revelation in Christ, if you will look to him, there is a blessing there. I have blessing for you. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your heartache, in the midst of your loss, look to me because I've got blessing for you right in the midst of that. I am the God who is. God is calling us to look away from our circumstances, as hard and as difficult as that is, He is singing to us in the name of his son, the face of his son, the Lord Jesus, to look up to Christ. And in our flesh, we are so skeptical of that. I think particularly particularly when it comes to the book of Revelation, because this is what our flesh says, I think, sometimes. I cannot take Revelation seriously. Have you heard the things that Christians do based on the book of Revelation? Christians do crazy things. They're always quoting Revelation. I cannot take Revelation seriously. Or if you're even more skeptical and you're here tonight, you might be thinking, I cannot take the Bible seriously. Have you heard and seen the things that Christians do while they're quoting the Bible? Why would I want to read the Bible? And if that's you, this is what I would say. Would you discount all of science because some scientists say and do crazy things? Would you just say, nope, science can't handle it? Or think about politics. Would you, would you throw out the need for government? Would you, would you throw out the need for laws and a civil society just because some politicians say and do crazy things? Why would we do that with the message of the Bible and Christianity? That just because some people abuse its message, that is not proof that when we use it rightly that it can't be a blessing. 
And that's all um, that Christ is trying to say here. That if we will look to his word, we will be blessed. Okay, I was looking, second seeing. I was converted my freshman year at the University of Alabama. And before I was converted, I lived 18 years believing in a God who rewarded good boys and girls. And if you were good, then God would reward you. And if you were bad, then he was going to punish you. And so I think that's how we all show up naturally. Scripture confirms that. That we just assume that if um, things are good in my life right now, I've got money in the bank account, then I must be doing right and living right. And if things are bad in my life and I don't have any money in the bank account, then I must be living wrong. And we live a whole life like that. And the temptation in our flesh is that even when we hear the name of Jesus and he calls us to look at him, is that when we do see him, we don't really see him. That's what the Gospels are full of, right? People who encounter Jesus and have an experience with him, but they, they don't know him. They can't understand what his mission and his calling in the world. And so that's why the scripture goes on in verse 4. It says to the John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And there's three things I want you to see here, but they all have to do with seeing Jesus rightly. That when we look to him, we have to listen to him telling us, here's who I am, so that when you look to me, you can actually see me in truth. So that you can know who I am really. First off, Jesus loves the truth. He's devoted to the truth. And you see this in verse 5 where he says, this is from Jesus Christ the faithful witness. By faithful witness, the scripture just means that Christ is devoted and determined um, to give you the truth about who you are and to give you the truth about who he is. And he wants to give you that for free. So that if you really want to understand your circumstances, if you really want to understand what you're going through, if you want to get to the bottom of it, Jesus says, come to me. I'll get you to the bottom of whatever that you're in. I will give you the brass tacks of what is going on in your life and what you can expect and who God really is. Not the God that we assume exists, but the God who has revealed himself to be Father and Son and Spirit. And the second thing you see in verse 5 is that he's the firstborn of the dead. And by that, what the scripture means is that Jesus is the first one to, um, to uh, like, almost like you're passing a baton, where the Old Testament has all these prophecies about one who would come, who would begin a new creation all over the world. And Jesus is the first one to take that baton and go. Not that he's going to pass it off to us, this analogy is already breaking down. But he is the one who has inherited all the promises from the Old Testament to take it and begin the new creation after he has died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That's why he's the firstborn, because others are going to be born. He's the one who's been raised first, because in him all his brothers and sisters are going to be raised from the dead. 
He's the firstborn of the dead. And then finally, in verse 5, the third title that it gives Jesus here is that he's the ruler of kings on earth. And when we look to Christ, Jesus wants us to know, he wanted these people here in the first century to know, two things. One, a very sobering thing, which is that Jesus is, Jesus is in control of everything happening in your life. Uh, Martin Luther once said that the, the devil is real, but he's God's devil. Such that nothing in the universe, nothing in all of the cosmos can happen without Jesus governing over it and being sovereign over it. Which, for the first century, Christians being beheaded for their faith, to look up at their Savior and go, you are holy, holy, holy. And you have brought this persecution into our lives. Now, that is sobering. To know that this is the Savior who died for me and who rose from the dead. The pain and the disconnection that I'm experiencing in my life, some way, somehow, in the infinite wisdom of Jesus, he has, he has led me into this difficult place. The most difficult of places. A place like even Jesus experienced where he was spat upon and hit in the face with the reed and crucified. That's the sobering thing. But the other thing is that he loves us and he has brought us to his heavenly father. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth and therefore this is the story of my salvation being worked out. This is good news for me. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And no one can do any harm, no one can do um, anything outside of his sphere of sovereignty. It's total and it's complete. And this really asks us, uh, this, this asks everything from us to admit, Lord Jesus, you are in control. But it's also a promise that he's going to give us everything. He's, he's in control. And If you're the kind of person here tonight, and when you look at yourself, all you see is failure and weakness. If, if, you're, the, if, if you're here tonight, and you look within yourself, and you see hardly any faith at all. You see hardly any righteousness. What this passage is saying is that look to Jesus. See him for who he truly is. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then look at the way verse 4 begins. He has grace and peace for you in the midst of your disconnection and pain and suffering. He doesn't sit over you in judgment, disappointed in you. He has grace for you. He has mercy for you. He has peace for you. And that's who he really is. That's the real Jesus that no one could see. Okay, finally, belonging. We looked at looking and seeing and now belonging. Lisa and I went to a wedding yesterday, a beautiful wedding, Cobble Park Church. And weddings are great for all, all kinds of reasons, but the thing that struck me um, at this wedding yesterday was just the way that a wedding pictures one person giving themselves completely to the other 
the other person giving themselves completely to the other, such that they belong to each other. They both belong to each other. Not one more than the other, in theory. On the earth, it sometimes works itself out differently. But in theory, they belong to each other. They're mine, and I'm theirs. The last part of verse 5 begins, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John has called us to look to Christ so that we might see him for for who he truly is. So that we might know deep in our bones that he belongs to us. And that we belong to him. The scripture makes clear, and John is sure at the end of verse 5, that he has loved us. You know, it's one thing to believe that God loves the world. But it's another thing to be sure that God loves me. It's one thing to think that Jesus died on the cross to free people in general from their sins. But it's another thing to be sure that he has freed me from my sins. And scripture is holding that forth to say, this is what God wants for you, to be sure of that. Not that we can become sure of it by just thinking to ourselves, I want to be sure that I'm forgiven, I want to be sure that I'm forgiving, and just repeating it over and over. No, he's calling us to look to Christ, and by looking, that's how we'll become sure. But then in verse 6, he says that he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God. We belong to the God of Jesus and to his Father. And then he goes on to say, to him be glory and dominion forever. I want to look at verse 6 especially because he says that, once again, that this is his God. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And I think the spirit in this passage is unpacking that more and more. We've already talked about how Jesus is receiving revelation so he can give it to us out of generosity. And then again, John mentions that God has brought us to Christ so that Christ's God could be our God. Because this is the mystery, that Jesus made God his God so that his God could become our God. Jesus made his God, or sorry, Jesus made God his God in in his life and in his death. He was devoted to God, always believed in God, so that that God could be our God, so that we could be adopted into his family, so that we could be loved by him. And so when you're not sure that God is really your God, the scripture is saying, look to Christ, who wants to assure us, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you don't always believe like you should. I did that for you. I I made this infinite and eternal and unchangeable God my God. I devoted myself to him so that that God could be your God. I did it for you. It's a free gift. I'm generous and I'm kind. And I want you to rest in that. That God can't leave you. He can't forsake you. He can't sort of pull the plug and become disconnected from you and your life Because Jesus was always connected to God. And he was always believing in God. He's always trusting in God. So that we could become a priest. 
just like Christ. And priests in the Old Testament were those who had the privilege to enter into the presence of God, to experience the glory of the God of Israel. And they also interceded on the behalf of others. Um, the flesh comes in here, doesn't it? And it, it tries to question everything that God is saying. Because looking to Jesus in tribulation and suffering, it's an invisible uh, thing that we're doing here. What's the children's catechism say? Can you see God? Nope. And because our flesh knows that, it tries to question, you know, is this, I mean, an invisible God, really? Um, A pastor that I was listening to, getting ready for this passage, he he brought to attention uh, the story that in the 1940s, there were people who were criticizing what, what they called um, Negro spirituals. And they, they were criticizing these, um, these African-American gospel songs because they believed they were too otherworldly. They were too filled with references to heaven and to crowns and thrones and robes and you know, singing about Jesus' return. And the argument was that it made African Americans more docile and submissive. More, it was basically an oppressive way to think. But on the contrary, this one professor argued that this, this faith in the invisible God, Jesus Christ, who's in heaven, it actually deepened the slave's capacity for endurance. And this author, he, he goes on to deny that the Christian hope weaken the slaves' self-respect or their ability to face their captors, and rather it taught the slaves how to ride high in life, these are his words, to look squarely in the face, those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope. And this enabled the slaves to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Why could nothing destroy their hope? Because it was otherworldly. It was outside this world. And it gave them more dignity, uh, more respect. Why could nothing destroy their hope? It was otherworldly. It was not based on any circumstance within the walls of this world. It lay in the future with God, and according to Revelation right now. And this hope enabled them to to affirm a terrible right to live. And that life, according to the scriptures, was full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and knowledge, and righteousness, and holiness. And they had all that in their life as a slave. Here in the call of Jesus, and looking to him, and remembering that he belonged to them, and that no one could take him from them. This is so much better than optimism, y'all. So much better than just optimism. So much better than just counting your blessings in life. It's the king of kings saying, look to Jesus Christ. I'm the firstborn of the dead. And I want to give you grace and peace. I'm with you right where you are. I'm the God who will be. I'm the God who was. But I'm the God who is right here, right now. And I want you to be a priest. 
I want you to enter in on the behalf of your neighbor, on the behalf of your family, on the behalf of the people that you work with. And if you will do that and listen and keep what I'm telling you, then you will be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for blessing us with the truth of the gospel. And we pray that you would make it real in our hearts and in our minds. Amen.